0: If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you now to turn in in them to Matthew chapter 7. It's good to see all of you this morning. It's good to be here together. I hope, uh, I'll just echo what what was said already this morning, that I hope you'll stay, whether you brought food or not, you'll stay and we'll just have a good time together of fellowship for this meal. It's just good to be together as believers, good to encourage one another. Uh, It's always a good time. All right, our passage today is Matthew chapter 7, wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, verses 21 through 23 is where we're at today. So I'm gonna read that, and then I'm just gonna pray again because we, we do need God's help to see. So Matthew seven twenty-one says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Father, we we come to you wanting, desiring, to hear what our Lord Jesus Christ has to say to us in his word. And so, Lord, that's what what this is all about. We want to hear from you. And so I pray in a couple different ways as we go about this. I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of that message. I pray that it would be clear, that we would see it as it really is. And I pray that we pray together, I hope, that you would work in our lives so that we would heed it, we'd hear it, see it clearly, and we would obey it. I, I pray for your help. And I pray, Lord, I pray that none of us in this room would be sermon-proof this morning. None of us would be occupied with other things. None of us would hear these things and think, man, I don't need to know that. Oh, Lord, would you break through all of those things. None of us would be thinking about a game that's going on later today. Oh, Lord, would you help us to think about your word and think about the words of Christ and think about things that have eternal significance And I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us and give us hope. I pray that you would give us confidence on that last day. Confidence rooted in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Early last week, uh, the elders, it was Monday night, the elders and the deacons all met together um, for a church leadership meeting. We don't often, usually we meet separately, the deacons meet and the elders meet, but this time the church leadership team, we all got together and we met together and it was a really, really nice time. We broke bread together. We worked through this big agenda together. Uh, everything we talked about was the church and it was, it was just so encouraging, super encouraging to see all those men together, uh, representing all that faithfulness and us enjoying a sweet time of unity together. God is so good to us as a church. And it's worth rejoicing over. It's worth rejoicing over. So we had that time together. And one of the things that was on that agenda that we covered was, uh, was safety plans for the church. Like we have, a, we have an elder who is thinking through. He's working together with other people. But he's thinking through, and he has been for several months, um, plans like contingency plans in case something happens in the service, like a tornado or um, some, some medical issue or so, you know, a way to recognize a potential danger and then a plan to respond to that danger. That's what that was all about. And he basically presented his findings and where they're at right now. And they're continuing to think seriously about that. And that's, that's good. But here is something interesting to consider, okay? Okay. All the physical dangers we could possibly face. All all the kinds of, all the, the categories of dangers that, that the safety team is considering. All of those, they're temporary. They're not unimportant, mind you. We, we think they're important. That's why we're, we're they're, they're important. But they are temporary. All the dangers in that category. Physical dangers like fire and medical and weather, and so on. They're temporary dangers. Here, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is highlighting for us dangers that are eternal in their implications. I mean, this is danger. Eternal. The dangers in our passage, the passage today, one last week, one next week, one week week before that, they all have implications that last forever. And I want you to consider that. Forever for you. We take temporary dangers seriously, don't we? I mean, I'm glad we do. I'm glad we do as a church. I'm glad you do. We take temporary dangers seriously. How much more attentive should we be to these kind of dangers? As you know, we, if you've been attending here, uh, we have been preaching our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We have taken a good long look at this amazing sermon, which begins way back in Matthew 5, 1, when Jesus, and it says there in 5, 1, Jesus sat on a hill, he, sat on, he went up on a mountain and began to teach. And that's why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. He's on a mountain there in northern Israel, and he's teaching. And that goes all the way to the end of chapter 7 and where we are today. And I think we have two more sermons, maybe three, in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we'll, we're done with that part of, of this. So Jesus is in wrap-up mode, as you should be, as you come to the end of your sermon, right? Wrap-up mode. And here he gives us some warnings about, the, about potential dangers, real dangers that we face. And so we should perk our ears and listen and set our hearts to heed him, right? The first wrap-up warning was back in chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where Jesus made it clear that there are two ways that you can go. Two ways that every person on the planet one, they go one of two ways. You can follow Christ on the narrow way that leads to life. You go through the narrow gate, live on the narrow way, the hard way. Or you can go through the wide gate, the wide path, the one that most people are going on, the one that leads to destruction. It's danger, right? Huge Danger. Last week, Pastor Burt preached verses 15 through 20, 7, 15 through 20, and the dangers that are in that passage, right? There's a danger of false prophets. Jesus uses the image of sheep needing to beware wolves that are dressed up like sheep. They come in sheep's clothing, and they come to devour the sheep, ultimately to lead people away from the hope that we can have in Jesus Christ. That's another danger we face, and that is another danger with eternal implications. Now we come to our passage today, verses 21 through 23. If, If verses 15 through 20 highlight the danger of false prophets, then verses 21 through 23 highlight the danger of false professions, false professions of faith. The danger of relying on a profession of faith that will not hold sway in the day of judgment another danger with eternal ramifications. And I hope you will hear this this morning for your own eternal safety. It's not a good Sunday to be sermon-proof. You know what I mean by that word? I I pray it a lot. Not a good day to be sermon-proof. I often pray that the Lord would not allow us to be sermon-proof And what I mean is that we can posture ourselves to hear a sermon, whether it's a sermon being preached live like this or a sermon we're reading like the the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. We can posture ourselves in such a way that it leaves no mark on us whatsoever. That's a danger coming to church and being sermon-proof. Maybe we think it doesn't apply to us. All kinds of reasons why we can posture ourselves to be sermon-proof. Maybe we think we already know it. Maybe, maybe our minds are filled with other things. Maybe, maybe we're just not interested. Here, because we like it, but not interested. We can be sermon-proof. And this isn't a good day to do that. The danger is eternal. For so many in our very own culture, not some far-removed culture, not just an ancient culture, I think this is timeless, a timeless danger, but in our very own culture... There is a danger because we can view what it means to be a Christian in such a thin way, so wrapped around our culture and our heritage and our religious motions that we could be in danger of hearing Jesus say one day, go away from me. I never knew you. Will he say that to you? Jesus said there, were, there will be many, he will say that too. Don't, 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 don't miss that word, many. There will be many. Shouldn't we take this to heart, lest we be among the many? And shouldn't we take heed to this so that the way that we talk about the gospel, the way that we talk about the saving truth of, of Christ? would not be thin. When we we share this with our family and our friends and our neighbors, the way we talk about saving faith won't lead others to a place of resting in an insufficient and false and indeed dangerous profession of faith. This is not a good Sunday to be sermon-proof. Eternity is at stake. Heaven and hell are at stake. So let's spend a few moments together being serious and wanting to hear what Jesus has to say, hearing the warning, taking the tone of the warning and letting it resound in our our ears so that we would be the one, quote, who does the will of the Father in heaven, not the many who will hear, I never knew you. So let's think together about this false profession and the false confidence that many will have on that day. Jesus says in verse 21, not everyone, just read again, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And I want you to know something about that. You know, they're calling out Lord, Lord, and there's nothing suspects. How do you guys say it? There's nothing sus about that, right? There's nothing sus about calling him Lord, right? That's, That's like, that's like, entirely orthodox. They're, they are saying, Lord, Lord, now consider, I just want you to think about how theologically accurate that is. I mean, that's, that's right to call Jesus Christ Lord. Interesting how it comes up here. This is the first time Jesus refers to him as Lord in this, in this gospel, in Matthew. It comes up eight times in uh, chapter five. I mean, the next chapter, chapter eight. Um, five times in chapter eight, there. All these numbers. But first time here, But it's right, it's theologically right to call Jesus Lord and they say it twice, they don't just say it once. They don't just say Lord, they they say Lord, Lord. The the words themselves don't lend themselves to any sort of error. They don't betray any error in themselves. It's polite, it's right, it's, it's right to call Jesus Lord. It's entirely orthodox and yet Jesus is still calling them out. The, the problem is that we can know the facts, we can know them rightly, we can know theology even, we can know it rightly, we can know the jargon, and we can know that rightly, and yet the jargon we use, the way that we talk, might not represent who we really are. So my dad was in the Air Force, and so I grew up around aviation, both military and civilian. I was around it a lot, especially as a young child, all the way up until my, my teens. Uh, we had a, there was a friend of the family who was a USAF uh, fighter pilot, and he would take us up Uh, sometimes in a small plane. He'd take me up sometimes in a small plane, sometimes other guys from our youth group and church and all that. Sometimes he'd even let me take the controls and fly it a little bit while we're we're up there, right? Until he got really nervous. Sometimes I was really quick, his nervousness. He's a nervous guy, I don't know. Then then I became a missionary, uh, and in the first few years of my missionary service, I flew all over in these small Cessnas, all over the jungles of South America and Central America and Southeast Asia, uh, oceana I, I flew a lot in these little small airplanes all the time. I loved sitting up front and because of like uh, I was often lighter than some of the people who were flying with so i 'd sit right next to the pilot you know because they, they balance everything by the weight and i 'd have the headphones on and i 'd talk to the pilot. We talked about all kinds of stuff i 'd love talking about aviation. I was very interested in aviation, so I picked up a lot of aviation jargon over the years I've, I've, I, I know a lot of terms about aviation. I I mean, I could talk to you, about I have some kind of understanding of what those things are. I mean, I I could talk to you about lift and roll and pitch and yaw and stall speeds and stall aircraft and short finals and pilot and command hours and a lot more. But I'm no pilot. No pilot. I have never piloted an aircraft from takeoff to landing. In fact, I've never landed a plane, not even once. So just by way of advice, if you're ever with me on an airplane together and the pilot has a heart attack, you don't want me to take control of the plane and land it just because I've been on airplanes a lot. You don't want me to do that. Don't ask me, it won't end well. Ask me to pray for you. Ask me to share with you the theology of dying. I can do that. Don't ask me to fly. Because even knowing, you know, knowing the right way to say stuff knowing the right way to even think about stuff doesn't make me a pilot any more than knowing the right, say, the right way to say stuff makes you a Christian. Even knowing correct orthodox theology is not what makes you a Christian. Isn't it possible that many that Jesus is referring to here who will say on that day, Lord, Lord, and then be tragically ushered away from the presence of the Lord? Isn't it possible that some of them will have PhDs in theology and MDivs? Isn't it possible, even likely, that they will know their stuff, that some of them have maybe even written books about Jesus? It's not knowing stuff about Jesus that makes us right with God. Consider, my friends what Satan knows about Jesus. Just think about it. He knows that Jesus is the son of God. He knows really well that reality. He knows that Jesus died on the cross as a substitution. He knows that he died as a payment for our sin. He knows without any doubt that Jesus really died, that he was really buried and that he really rose again. Satan knows these things. He knows that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he knows that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. But none of that knowledge saves him. He is not saved for knowing those right things about Jesus. No one is saved that way. In fact, James makes that point. Explicitly clear in James 2.19, doesn't he? He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. They believe. Demons believe. And according to that verse, they even emotionally respond to that belief about God. Demons shudder at the reality of God and it does not save them. They are condemned. There is a great danger, friend, if you have grown up in the church and around Christians. You have heard the language and you have learned the theology. You know all about Jesus. You know about his death on the cross. You know about his resurrection. You know all about God. You have been in church. Your parents maybe are Christians. And maybe you even sometimes shudder at truths that you have heard. That doesn't make you a Christian any more than my knowledge makes me a pilot. But there's more, there's more, right? There's more to what's going on in this passage with these people. There's more. They're not merely claiming to know stuff. They're claiming to have done stuff. Do you see that? They're claiming to have done stuff. Look again at verse 22. Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty, many powerful works in your name? I mean, they did stuff. They they, they did stuff in church. They, they prophesied. They taught. They taught Sunday school, maybe. They did spiritual stuff in the church. They were part of it. Mighty works. Casting out demons. All in the name of Jesus. You can almost feel like the incredulity that Jesus would not right away welcome them, right? Like, how could he not welcome me? Look what I've done. Oh, it's you, Mike. This is how I think he should... Oh, it's you, Mike. You you preached. You you crossed cultures. You baptized people. Of course, there's a place for you in the kingdom of God. Come right in. That might be what they're expecting. Come right in. I kind of welcome, based on such powerful evidence, right? Such careful, theologically correct understanding. Of course, I will be accepted by God. Only they're not. Instead of welcoming them, Jesus, the judge, the righteous judge at the end of the age, says three powerful and very tragic things to them. He says, I never knew you. Go away from me. And he charges them with being workers of lawlessness. So let's just walk through those. What could be more tragic than hearing Jesus say, depart from me? Go away from me. That's the literal language. Go away from me. I never knew you. There was never a real relationship between us. You did things in my name, you say, but I never knew you. It's not what Jesus says to Christians. You know what he says to Christians? Christians. In John 10, 14 through 15, we get a a picture of how, how, how Jesus views Christians. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus knows his sheep. He knows who his sheep are. So these who come with the right talk and and who are resting and trusting in their Christian experiences are not his. He does not know them. They are not genuine Christians. Christians are known by God. Jesus will not say to one single genuine Christian at the end of the age, depart from me, I never knew you. Not one. Jesus knows his sheep. So those who come using the right words and thinking the right theology and banking on their Christian experience are simply not his. That's, the, that's, what we must, that's what we must conclude from this passage. The only conclusion we can draw here. It's not as if he knew them at one time and at that last day he doesn't know them. He doesn't say that. He actually makes it clear. I never knew you. There was never a relationship. Never a genuine relationship. Obviously, lots of Christian stuff happened in their lives, but no genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the most frightening thought, isn't it? For me as a pastor, this is what keeps me up at night, if anything. There's a danger. I mean, this is a danger that I think about most. The reality that there might be those among us who are in this many. People who know lots of theology and do lots of Christian stuff. They have a Christian story and they would almost get offended if you witnessed to them. But who do not know Jesus in a saving way and who remain sermon proof. That keeps me up at night. The next thing he says to them is depart from me. Again, you could say, go away from me. That's the literal words there. And that means that they will have no place with Christ forever. This is a horrible reality. No place with Christ forever. No no acceptance into his presence ever. They will be banished from the presence of the Lord for eternity. That's the very definition of hell. Jesus is speaking of eternal condemnation And finally, he levels a charge at them, at these who relied on false professions of faith. He calls them workers of lawlessness. And what I think he means by that word or by that term is that they felt no constraint to live their lives in the way that God's word tells them to. And I think that's the clue. I think why they were relying on these things that they had done, they were not living their lives in obedience to God's word. They felt no constraint to live their lives in the way that God tells us to. Sure, they did stuff in Jesus' name. He makes it clear here, but there's no genuine obedience to what Christ calls us to in this world. They showed no genuine obedience to what we have seen in the Sermon on the Mount. They were sermon-proof. They heard Jesus say things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, but they would not lay down their pride. They heard Jesus say, blessed are they that mourn, but they would not, relinquish their self-righteousness. They would not stop strutting their supposed righteousness long enough to realize that they were desperate in need of God's saving grace. They heard Jesus say, blessed are the merciful and his, his charge to forgive others who wrong us, but they would not show mercy or forgive those who have harmed them. They heard him preach about loving their enemies not avenging ourselves, having eyes only for our spouses. They heard him tell us not to lay up treasures on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven. They heard it, but they were sermon proof to those realities. They just continued practicing their lawlessness, covered with a veneer of religious activity and deeds and church attendance and stuff. unconstrained by God's demands on their life. They were not obedient to the Father's will, and so they are finally rejected. Their profession and their claims notwithstanding, they don't hold sway at the end. Jesus says those words, I never knew you. So who are those whose professions are genuine? You can see that here too, can't you? whom Jesus will welcome into his presence on that day. He tells us in verse 21, but the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my father in heaven. And we learn something crucial here, crucial here about the nature of saving faith. Jesus is not teaching us that we are saved by obedience. You could get that if you just read this really quickly, but if you consider all that Jesus taught, there's no way he could be teaching that. And all that Jesus did, and all the New Testament teaches, you can't come away from that without understanding that we're saved by obedience. I, I, you know, I could read passages like Romans 5.1. We have been justified by faith. And we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not contradicting that. All of his life is teaching. His work itself teaches us this. He died on the cross in our place. He did the work. It was finished on the cross. He said so, right? Didn't he say that? It's finished. We don't add to the work of Jesus. We don't do anything. We don't add any work that makes us acceptable before God. Jesus did the work. He said, Whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. He did the work. So Jesus is not teaching that we are saved by obedience. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Yet he is clearly teaching us that no one who remains disobedient will be saved. Do you you see that? No one who remains disobedient will be saved. So how do you reconcile those two realities? The answer is understanding the nature of faith. It's not the right words that show the genuineness of your faith. It's not even the right experiences. It's not the activities that you sign up for or do. The way that you spend. It's, it's, it's not those things that show your genuine faith. Your faith is gem- demonstrated by your obedience to God. Those whom Jesus knows and will welcome on that last day are those who have been justified by faith in Christ. And true faith in Christ is faith that follows Jesus Christ. Friends, there's a ridiculous theology that is both harmful and wrong and that has invaded many parts of the American church, especially in the last 50 years. And you've probably at some point felt its influence in some way or another. It is a theology that promises that if you know certain truths about God, then you're good to go and you should never have to consider your way of life because it has no bearing on, on what you know and whether you're saved or not saved. They say obedience to Christ's demands might follow true saving faith and perhaps should follow true saving faith, but do not always follow true saving faith. They're not necessary evidence of saving faith. It is a theology that ignores much of the New Testament. It is a theology that ignores what Jesus is teaching here. It is classic sermon proofing away from the words of Christ. It ignores Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of John and in so many other places in the New Testament writers. It ignores passages like James 2, 18, where James says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Genuine faith follows Jesus for real. Real. And we know this. We know this just by experience, just by our understanding of what happens when we believe things, right? You, you know how this works. We, we know how this, our own experience, the Bible and our own experience teaches us that when we really believe something that matters, right? Like things happen in our lives. When one of my kids was very small, we were walking up and down a train. We're in the middle of Siberia crossing the the. the, the Tundra of, of Siberia. we're five days on this train. It's super, super interesting to sit on a train for five days seeing the same scenery go by. So we're walking up and down the train trying to entertain ourselves, me and this little boy who's, I don't know, five. And uh, we come to a place between the train cars. you know I don't know if you've ever been on one of these trains, but you, you know everything's nice and quiet, and then you get to the door and you open the door and it's loud and it's dark, and things are moving, and it feels freaky. You know what I mean? And uh, so this this boy's following me. Uh, I'm I'm holding his hand. We're walking through, and all of a sudden there's like heavy resistance. Like I'm not going there. I open this door, and and then I shut the door. And you know because I'm a good theologian dad, I stopped and I said, "Hey, hey son, do do, do you trust me?" Yeah, I thought I'd make a teaching moment out of it. Don't you trust me, son? And He says, "Yes, I trust you, dad." He called me papa so then take my hand and follow me. And he looked up at me with right in the eyes and with steely resolve, he said, no. (laughs) I'm sure that my little boy trusted me most of the time. But there was limits to how much he would trust me. And that limit was right there at that door when it was loud and boisterous and the train was moving on that outside. He was not going through that door. In that moment, facing the dark reality in front of him, he decided he would not trust me. Faith, as we see it in the Bible, always does things. It always follows. It always follows. True faith obeys, right? Right? And I mean, it's so important, like, because we face these dark things in life, right? True faith follows. Hebrews 11, that wonderful chapter, we call it the, cha- the hall of fame of faith. You know what I mean? Like, it's just this, it, it talks about all the, all the heroes of our faith. And, but it's not just like a chapter, like exploring intellectual ascent. It's not like a bunch of ideas that these guys thought. That's not what you get when you read this, chapter 11. It's what they did. It's a chapter of people who believed in Jesus and then did things that showed that they were believing. So Hebrews 11.7, for example, says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Imagine what that verse would say if Noah had looked up to God, facing that dark reality in front of him and with steely resolve said, I trust you, but no. He would have died in his unbelief. No one would say that that was faith. We would understand his disobedience to be evidence of faithlessness. Faithlessness. But as it is, we can see his faith because he obeyed God. He built the ark. Faith obeys. If, we, if, if I trust in Christ, I trust his way for my life. Faith means believing God, right? Believing his way is best for me. There's a transformation that takes place when a believer believes. His life is different. I, we follow Christ. A believer follows Christ. It is faith alone that saves. Okay, this is a a statement that many of the reformers loved. I think the first one who said it was John Calvin. Most people attribute it to Luther. I don't know. I found the earliest one when I was doing my research this week with Calvin. John Calvin said, it is faith alone which justifies and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. And what he means is true faith is never all by itself. It always shows itself true faith obeys. If I truly believe Jesus, I will hear him and desire to obey him. My life will be shaped by Christ. The true evidence of my genuine salvation is not mere words, and it's not spiritual experiences, but it is genuine obedience to the call of God on my life. That's the point of this passage. Let me say it again, okay? The true evidence of my genuine salvation is not mere words, or even spiritual experiences, but in genuine obedience to the call of Christ on my life. You know, the only ones who follow the one's call, Christ's call on their life, the only ones are Christians. Christians follow the call of Christ on their life. All Christians. Is what you say that you believe about Jesus demonstrated by the way that you live your life? You have to ask that. You, you have to, right? You cannot read this and then like go home and think everything's okay because I, I one day said I'm a Christian. Raised my hand, said a prayer. You have to ask this, friend. You have to. Is what you say you believe about Jesus demonstrated by the way that you live your life just another way of asking if this is real for you, if your Christianity is real, authentic, if you really believe if you really trust Christ. And you know why that's such an important question today? Why is that an important question today, February 12th, 2023? Why why is that important today? Because on that day, it will be too late. On on that day, he says to those who say, Lord, Lord, but by their lives demonstrate that they don't trust him, he doesn't say, let's think this through. He says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Don't rely on your heritage. Don't rely on your parents' faith. Don't rely on your correct theology. Don't rely on your ability to name the facts about Jesus. Don't even rely on your spiritual experiences, the things that you have done for God. Rely on Jesus alone. Trust in him, his work on the cross for you, where he graciously paid for your sin debt and made you acceptable before God. Rely on him and his resurrection and the life-changing reality of the new birth. Trust in him today. And friend, when you trust in him like that, your life will be different. And that, that's, that's one of the ways that God gives us confidence that we're his. We see that he is at work in us. We, we love others, right? Where we used to hate others. And we know that's a work of God in us. Only he could do that. And he does it. You will be different. Your life will be different. It cannot not be different if you're following Jesus if you're trusting him, you take his hand, even when you're facing this dark reality in front of you and with steely resolve, you say, I will follow you. What will you say on that last day? And infinitely more important, what will Jesus say to you? You can have confidence on that day if your confidence, your faith is in Jesus Christ alone. You will not hear him say to you, go away from me. Not a single person, not a single believer, not a single Christian, true Christian whose faith is in Christ will hear Jesus say those horrible words, go away from me, not one. You know what they will hear him say? You know what we will hear him say? Those who are trusting in Christ We will hear him say, by God's grace, come. You who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's from Matthew 24. Enter into the joy of your master today. That's what you hear. Let's pray. Lord, I pray We pray together that you will root out any false professions of faith in our lives, any false confidence that we go by, anything that we have, any box that we have checked off and thought, that's why God will accept me. And that our confidence today, leaving this place, will be in Christ and in Christ alone. And that those that that faith will show itself so evidently and so clearly in the way that you transform our lives and we follow you. So Lord, I pray for any today who come today who have been sermon-proof their whole lives. I pray today, Lord, scales would fall off, eyes would be open, heart would be beating, and there'd be faith in Jesus Christ today. Help them believe. And may our confidence be at the end of the age what Christ has done for us.